Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Peter Gabbett Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Timothy Hankst, and today is June 21st, 2020, which means I'm on day 190 in a row of 365 promised episodes that brings you unedited, unscripted, improv, news, movies, music, sports, entertainment, food, and all things except politics. Well, folks, it is Father's Day, and a happy Father's Day to anyone out there who's a father, unless they're a deadbeat dad, in which case, grow up, you pile of crap. But to the fathers out there who are good fathers, they're there for their families, they're there for their kids, they're there for their wives, they work hard, they provide, you know, they just teach life lessons to their children the way they need to be taught, especially coming from their respected father. It means a lot for kids to have a dad in their lives. It just totally does. Trust me, I had a fantastic father. Well, I have, and he is an amazing guy. And I'm going to give a few shout-outs right now to some fathers that I know that are great with their children, their family men, they take care of their stuff, and they do it right, and for that they deserve... The ultimate Peter Gabbett shout-out. Here they are. Of course, my own father, Joel Hankst, Paul Hankst, James Hankst, Paul Zaworski, Carl Burnick, Ted Burnick, some friends of mine, Nathan Krupp, Chris Connors, Steve Palmer, Mike Bishop, Dwayne Honecker Jr., Ismael Flores, David Flores, Andy McGeoch, Eric LaPlante, Jordan Elting, Bryce Lewis, Nick Salzman, Aaron Aceves, and Steve Brown, to name a few. There are so many more, and it makes me proud to know that I personally know so many good fathers out there setting a great example for their children and setting us up for a wonderful, bright future for our people, our country, the globe itself, humanity, everything. They do it right, and it works best when children have a great, loving father in their lives. So congratulations to all you fathers out there, and happy Father's Day. Thank you so much for being great dads. Yay! Well, folks, I predicted that yesterday Raquel Pennington would win and Curtis Blades would win. Those were my only two predictions in the UFC fights, and it turned out I was correct. However, I did predict that the Raquel Pennington fight would only last for one round, which it went to decision. And I also predicted that the Curtis Blades fight would last for only two rounds, which also went to decision. Now, I was surprised, I must admit, how much larger... Alexander Volkov was than Curtis Blades, which makes sense as to why Blades took him to the ground over and over with some dirty boxing, Randy Couture style, laying on top of him, pushing him up against the fence. And yes, it wasn't very exciting, but that's all right because he took the W and that's all that matters. A lot of people get upset when they see this type of a UFC fight. They're like, oh, come on. Don't be a wuss. Stand on your feet and fight the guy. Well, why would you do that if you know for a fact you stand no chance because the guy's reach and height is way longer and larger than you? It doesn't make any sense. If you know you can win a certain way, 
then you have to go that route. That's the only choice. It just is a ridiculous notion to believe that somebody is going to throw caution to the wind and accept a 95% chance of defeat by going after somebody on their feet when they know that if they take them to the ground, they're almost guaranteed the W. And that's what Curtis Blades did. He took Alexander Volkov to the ground and rolled around with him for five rounds. I'm sure people got sick of this. They didn't like it. But I don't care what they like. It was the way to win for Blades, and he took home the W. The judges gave it to him. It was a unanimous decision, and it makes sense to me to do that. If you don't want that to happen, Dana White, if it frustrates you the way that fight went down, then you need to put two guys in the ring for the main event that have an even matchup that makes sense to stay on their feet the whole time. Don't put a world-renowned wrestler in with a guy who's a foot taller than him and has like six inches longer reach who is a boxer. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to not expect it to end up on the ground. Blades shot for Alexander Volkov's feet and took him down like enough times to win the fight based on takedowns and basically control of the fight. He controlled it for the most part, even though by the end his lip was, his mouth was pouring out blood. He had gotten punched a few great times by Alexander Volkov to the point where I thought for a minute Curtis Blades was going to go down and get knocked out. But he did what he had to do to win, and that's how you do it. Congrats to you, sir. And Raquel Pennington, she handled business as well, just grinding out the fight. And, you know, there wasn't as many knockouts as the previous week, but we get UFC every Saturday, it seems like. So just wait for another week, and you'll see some fantastic knockouts after all. So it all started with the COVID-19, then came Killer Hornets, or Killer B-Killing Hornets, whatever they were, which I actually never saw any of those, so that didn't affect me at all. Then came the protests and riots and looting, and now what? Oh, that's right, the Saharan Dust Plume. Yep, why not? We've had everything else. We've already had a hurricane this year. We've already had, you know, torrential downpours and flooding. We've already had giant baseball and softball size hail drop in parts of Texas. You know, we've just had all this crazy stuff happen. The Chaz, the Chop, whatever you want to call it in Seattle, that's just ridiculous. The dismantling of every single significant historical monument that has ever had a place anywhere, it seems, is getting destroyed by anarchists and people just like to spray graffiti on things. And we've had Antifa, we've had all this weird Proud Boys and these other groups, and now we have a Saharan dust plume. I mean, what could possibly happen next? I expect Sharknado 100% to hit any time, but this Saharan dust plume is ridiculous. It can be seen from space. A giant batch of dust from the Sahara Desert floating all the way across the ocean, now hitting 
the east coast of North America. <laughs> I just can't even make this stuff up. It's so ridiculous. I do not know what to say about this. I mean, I guess if you have bad allergies, beware and bring yourself an inhaler everywhere you go. Because the Saharan dust plume is on its way to get you. Samsung Blu-ray players all across the board have reportedly stopped working in people's houses all of a sudden. Which begs the question, why do you still watch Blu-rays? I mean, every five to ten years, things become obsolete that we thought would last forever. And somehow, someway, VHS and VCR and all that lasted way longer than we expected before DVDs came out, which lasted about 10 years before high-definition DVD and Blu-ray discs came out, which lasted about 5 to 10 years until nobody does that anymore because they can download everything instantly. I mean, do you not have a media player that has all of your stuff in it already? Do you not just buy the digital copy now? I mean, when you get a Blu-ray, it comes with the digital copy. Upload it the one time, real quickly, and you'll never have to search for that Blu-ray disc again in order to watch the movie. Now, who really does this? You have your big giant stack of Blu-rays that you sift through to watch a movie? I mean, what is this, 2015? It's not. It's 2020. Get with the program, people. Blu-ray players are out. All digital media is in. You can have a box the size of, like, your wallet that can contain as many movies as an entire book full of Blu-ray discs that is shaped like an old CD case that would zip up on the side and sit underneath your seat in your car between 1996 and 2006. I mean, I have so many obsolete Blu-rays, DVDs, and CDs. I don't even know what to do with these things. I feel like I need to keep them because of how much I spent on each individual one, with CDs being 10 bucks each back in the day, and DVDs being about 20 bucks each, and Blu-rays being like 25, if not 30 bucks a piece. I mean, this is too much money for these things that become obsolete so quickly. Everything needs to be digital from now on. And it needs to be like 2 or three ninety nine. That's 3 or $4 is what I'm talking about. Because you're downloading the digital version of this. Which means you don't get to physically take it with you and spread it around or trade it or let your friends borrow it. You're getting it digitally. It should be four bucks. Or you should get yourself a special box that I am not going to say I have, but I might know some people who do, including myself, that has everything on it already, and you don't have to download anything ever. So get with the program, forget about Blu-ray, it's old news, and who even cares that all the Samsungs miraculously stopped playing their Blu-ray discs for some reason or another. Maybe they got hacked by a really old hacker who thinks that it still means anything 
to hack Blu-ray players, because it does not. Now, for the most part, people assume that the general public in San Francisco has a bit of a heightened level of intelligence based on their Silicon Valley past. And a lot of people are in the tech industry there. They're knowledgeable with computers and just new technology. But now I'm under the assumption that the people there are idiots. Because with all this protesting and statue demolition happening across the U.S., they did something that makes absolutely no sense to the Black Lives Matter movement. And that is, they destroyed a Ulysses S. Grant monument in San Francisco. Well, I'm just, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, what do you think that is accomplishing in the movement to stop racism? You guys are idiots. Ulysses S. Grant is the northern general who fought against the South and played an integral role in the winning of the Civil War and the freedom of slaves. What is wrong with people? At this point, I have to assume every jackass who knocks over a statue has no idea and even any education regarding U.S. history whatsoever. I mean, people are knocking over George Washington monuments. I guess if he probably owned slaves, then there's a small tie to it. Ulysses S. Grant set free the one slave he had immediately and eventually honored him in one of the highest ways possible and went on to fight the South to ensure that all blacks were freed in America. That is ridiculous to knock over a freaking statue of a guy who has fought his whole life, or did fight his whole life, for the freedom of African Americans. What is wrong with people? He was the right-hand man to Abraham Lincoln. He literally was the most important piece of the puzzle to winning the Civil War. And you destroy his statue and tear it down in what? Like, what is the reason for that? It makes no sense absolutely whatsoever. And now my somewhat little fleck, little flake, little speck, I combined the two words into fleck apparently, of respect I had for anyone regarding the city of San Francisco has been melted away. What a bunch of fuzzles up there in the Bay. I mean, come on. Your rent's too high. Homeless people are pooping in the streets. And now you destroy a monument for a man in regards to a you know civil unrest movement occurring across the US and the monument is for a guy who literally fought his whole life to stop slavery i just don't get it you people are idiots 
Folks, I can't believe it's already here. I have a lot of stuff to do today. It's Father's Day, so I'm going to get to the point here. I'm going to get to the segment that you all have surely been waiting for, and that is Real Stories, brought to you by me, Peter Timothy Hankst, as it always is, and Barbecusion, that's B-B-Q-U-S-I-O-N. It is so good. Check it out on www.barbecusion.com. Today, folks, I'm going to tell you the story about when... I, Peter Hankst, played piano for many years. Yeah, that's right. Believe it or not, your old boy Pete here had the hands of an angel when it came to the piano. And when I was probably eight years old or so, my mother decided without my choice that I would play the piano and go to a teacher each week by the name of Cindy Elting, a great family friend and a phenomenal piano player, and learn how to play with all these things called theory books, which would just basically be worksheets and things that you would learn your notes and learn what staccato means and learn what retardando means and these other things. And so I did this, and when I would do something, I would never half-ass it, you know? I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't exactly passionately do it if I didn't want to, but I would do it, and I would do it right, and I would never half-ass it, because that's just not the way I am. I won't do something and do it in a slacker way and have people actually think that I'm not capable of doing this the right way, because, no, that's embarrassing to me. I need people, for some reason, to acknowledge the fact that I can be the best at anything I want, I just have to want to be the best at it. And for the most part, I didn't care personally about playing the piano at that age. Because, just picture this. My friends would be like, hey man, after school today, we're all going to meet up and do this. And I would say, I'm sorry guys, I can't. I have to go to piano lessons. Well, that didn't always go over well with my group of friends and the somewhat rough-around-the-edges neighborhood I lived in. I got made fun of for that, definitely. But either way, I was in, because my mom said I had to be. So I would go to Cindy Elting's house, and I would learn these new songs, and I would progress rapidly. She was actually quite surprised with my level of progression. My older sister, Ruth, had been doing it for years, and she had finesse. The thing about her, the difference between me and her was, I progressed fast, yes, but she had finesse and did not make mistakes. And she just had the natural talent of somebody who could play piano. Whereas I actually needed to practice and I didn't like practicing because I would get home from my piano lesson and then my mom would demand that I practice for another hour or two at our house. And I'm like, I just sat around doing this at somebody else's house, and now you want me to come home and do it again. And the bad thing about, you know, piano practice is you can hear when someone's playing a piano, and you can hear when they're not. So it was clear when I was messing around and faking like I was practicing and doing nothing, and my mom would be like, nope, I don't hear the piano up there, get it done, or in our case, downstairs, because... Well, we had a piano downstairs, and we had a, you know, 
a digital piano or a, what do you call it, a keyboard upstairs. Yes. Well, this is how much I paid attention. I don't even know what a keyboard is. I had to think about it for a second. So we got a keyboard upstairs and a grand piano downstairs. And, you know, I would practice and practice and do these things called recitals, which in, it would be, you know, you know what a recital is. It's in front of a bunch of people and you prove your skill. And I did not want to do them because that would mean I would actually have to practice and not just mess around upstairs and do whatever I wanted. So when my recital came, I had a song I had to play by Johann Sebastian Bach. It was called Well-Tempered Clavier by Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes, and a lot of people know about this music because they like classical music. I prefer music with words. That's the way I am. And so I practiced and practiced, but not really. I mostly messed around. I would play the song once and then just kind of do my own thing till my mom would yell that she didn't hear me and then I would do it again. And so, you know, I didn't practice much. And when it came the day for my sister to do her recital and then me right after her, she had practiced for hours and perfected this to the point where she was ready, like, to the maximum. You know, she was probably a little bit nervous, but not really. And she went up there and she killed it. 100% perfection. And I was just thinking in my head, I'm like... <laughs> I haven't even really, like, actually practiced this by choosing to do so, so that I could learn it. Like, I've only practiced this by force, so that each week, when I proved what I could do to my piano teacher, that she would just say, okay, and let me go home. So I walked up to this thing in front of everybody, you know, t a bunch of people watching me, people have all played piano, people are all musicians, they're into this life, and I sit down, the spotlight's on me, a bead of sweat dripping down my head. Not really, I'm not a sweaty guy, I just don't sweat very much, it's really weird, I don't understand why, but I'm freaking out, my heart's racing, and they tell me to go, and I killed it. I was perfect, note for note, 100% the right timing, and I just don't even know what happened to me, but the spirit of Johann Sebastian Bach came out in my fingers, and I played that song beautifully. Now, I will say, I didn't want to do a recital ever again. I did a few more because that was a requirement, and by the age of 10 or so, my mom could definitely tell I didn't want to do this. I just didn't want to, and she stopped forcing me to do it. She thought I would be into it, you know, just naturally. My sister, she was. She liked it, I think. She really did like it. I hated it. It was just another thing on top of school and baseball and extracurricular stuff that I did that left me with no time to hang out with my friends, which is all I ever wanted to do because I was a very friendly individual. And I quit, and to this day I regret it. I wish so badly I would have stuck with that, man. Because I saw that day, when I did that recital, that something inside me could be really great. 
in regards to playing the piano. Like, I could have gone far with this. I know I could have. Because of how fast I got to a higher level. And, you know, to this day, I've tried to revert back to it a couple times and see what I can do. I can't do shit. I'm terrible now. Because I never practiced. I let it all slip away over the years. And I preferred to party, smoke weed, drink alcohol, and, you know, have sex with people. I mean, what is my problem? I literally pissed away a great opportunity given to me by my mother. And for that, I feel embarrassed. The lesson to be learned in this real story is if you see yourself able to do something well at a very young age, you owe it to yourself to pursue it with an actual personal passion and not just do it because somebody else makes you because you could be anything in regards to that subject. I could have been a, a famous pianist, which, by the way, is hilarious. I looked up my name one time online, Peter Hankst, spelled the exact same way, just to see if there was another out there. And there is, and he's a famous pianist in Germany. I'm not kidding you. That is crazy. There could have been two. But, you know, leave it to him to be the better man. He actually liked it. I did not. Thank you for listening to the Peter Gabbett Podcast today, folks. For any of you out there who are fathers, once again, happy Father's Day to you. And I will talk to you all tomorrow. Now, folks, I just told a story about a man named Peter, me, who played the piano. And I even told you there's another Peter Hankst out there in Germany who's a famous pianist. But there's also a Peter from America who plays the piano phenomenally well. And that man is Peter Cetera. Here he is with Glory of Love. Both lying here, they're so 